he didn't kill everybody he was sleeping with. And so we had to figure out what was it, you know, and it really perplexed me thinking, what was his trigger? Because he seemed to be so docile when we talked to him, you know, and, but there had to be something that it was an accumulation of probably his childhood, his beatings, he just snapped. maybe his friend in Vietnam that was killed by prostitutes, mm-hmm. by prostitutes. but whatever it was, whatever they might've mm-hmm. said triggered him. And when that trigger went off, you were dead. John Cabrera, glad to have you back. Hey, it's always a pleasure yeah, to be yeah. back with you, Dave. John is a uh, retired Sacramento PD detective, and you did 30 years yes. working high profile. Like you did, you did all the crimes. And you, this is your, what, I think your fourth time on my show. We did the, the Midtown, no, the Land Park Massacre. We did Dorothea Puente. Right. We did Gerald Gallego. Yes. Right. Um, am I missing? Oh, and Batgirl, yeah. Michelle Comiskey, yes. which is honestly, that's my favorite. Yeah. But today you're back and we're going for the fifth time mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about your experience um, bringing down probably one of the most evil. Now, we all know about the Golden State Killer. We all know about Gallego. You know, we know about Dorothea Puente. But honestly, if you look into this, I see the person we're going to talk about today, Morris Solomon Jr. is kind of an iceberg right. because we only know the tip. And we only know the tip of what he did, the murders that he committed, because he kind of turned himself in accidentally. He didn't mean to. Right. But, and we'll, you'll get into that. Right. Um, if he hadn't made that stupid mistake, um, but he thought he was being smart, as I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll talk about, um, he'd probably still be out there. So we're, we're going to talk about Morris Solomon Jr. today um, from sa- the city of Sacramento in a suburb called Oak Park. Oak Park is an interesting part of Sacramento. Um, Back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it actually had a large amusement park out there. It was, there was a trolley line out to Oak Park. It was a place where families wanted to move. Unfortunately, um, World War II hit and the defense industry grew in in the city of Sacramento. And African-Americans began to move here and work. And in a lot of these these bases and, you know, other businesses that were associated with it. And they went to move and they started to move into Oak Park. And as happens in big cities, you get what you call white flight. Um, the white communities in these areas said, oh, you know, we're not going to move here. It's kind of sad. Um, but it took a lot of the um, a lot of the revenue and a lot of the tax base out of there, and they began to move into different suburbs in the Sacramento area. Correct. And Oak Park, by the 70s, it had really deteriorated, unfortunately. A lot of families had moved out, even those who had moved in during the 40s and 50s, either they were stuck there because they were, you know, on pensions, small pensions, they couldn't afford to move, or it were it, they had just left. Other people had just said, hey, we're just moving. We're out of here. Um, and so people began to move into Oak Park services began to to fall apart and it became kind of in the late 70s through the 80s it became a hotbed for gangs like that's kind of when i came to sacramento i was stationed at an air force base here called mcclellan air force base and oak park really we saw it we were given talks by the base don't go you can't go there um drugs were rampant uh, gangs were very dangerous, and you were to stay out as a military person. You were not allowed to go into Oak Park. 
yeah, it had really changed. It really changed. It at one time was the place to move to Correct. in Sacramento, right? And, yeah. And because of, you know, a lot of racism that was, you know, here in Sacramento at the time, it became um, a really not the greatest place. My parents had moved to a street just off of 19th Avenue in Oak Park back in the late 50s. And uh, we had lived out on Pocket Road on the ranch. And so my parents are now moving in. And mm -hmm. they rented a place just off of 19th Avenue. So we were in Oak Park. And even at that time, uh, you could definitely see that uh, things were changing because my parents would say, you know, don't go out too late at night. Make sure you're home. Even in the 50s. Even in the late. Yeah, even in the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, I remember that, uh, you know, it wasn't that bad. I mean, you know, we played on the streets and all the different areas of my friends. And I had attended an elementary school that was nearby. And uh, it seemed to be okay. But when I went to work as a police officer, then I really got to see mm -hmm. the underbelly of what Oak Park was mm -hmm. really about. So Morris Solomon Jr. had a long history. We can get into his childhood right. later because it's going to be an important part of the trial. Right. Um, but he came out to Sacramento. He had been in Vietnam, right? He right. was, he was uh, in Vietnam. They moved to the Bay Area, got married, I think. He moved, yeah. After he got out of the service, mm -hmm. uh, he moved to the Bay Area. He was married. He got married. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then that fell apart. And uh, then that's uh, when he moved up to Sacramento. But he was down there for a while. Now, he, I, I think he was, uh, well, the defense claimed that he had some PTSD. And I know he was using cocaine or, you know, crack. Right. Um, he was a drug addict. Um, so when he came to Sacramento, did he begin as a handyman or did he have a career? Or was he just a handyman when he came here? Well, actually, uh, he had lived in Isleton, too, with family. For, and for those who aren't in California or the Sacramento area, Isleton is a just a very, very, very small community. I guess it's a town, um, but it's a very, very small community. I mean, just a couple hundred people. And it's like hard by the river in the Delta. So it is like it, it, like one of the last places you would think a guy like Morris Solomon would live, but his family yeah. lived there, right? Right. Uh, not only that is he attended high school. He graduated high school and he attended community college. And uh, while he was going to community college, that's when he took up a jobs, you know, odd jobs, but mainly mm -hmm. he really stuck to being a handyman. Uh, that's when he really started doing a lot of extra work, making a lot of extra money, and probably at that time got into drugs. And so where did he do, where did he start his work in, uh, in Oak Park? How did that start? Well, he, uh, you know, he went to the service, he got out and he went through getting married and all that. Um, and he actually had a child. In his marriage, he had a child. Do we know that child? Uh, I, we have no information no. on the individual uh, th that I have. But um, then he came to Sacramento. That was his movie, came to Sacramento. And that's when he took up being a handyman and started working. And he started getting a lot of jobs in Oak Park. Because he was a nice guy, right? People he, liked him. It, it, yeah, you wouldn't. Just looking at him, when, as I did, first couple of times I met him, you would never even think. I mean, he was a guy that was, what, five, six, five, seven at a stretch. Uh, thin. When he little, woke up. When he woke up. And, he was 5'7". Right. And he was wiry. I mean, you know, he was wiry, but he was such an extrovert. What a personality. I mean, the guy just talk, 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 talk. I mean, he was around you and just wanted to, hey, hi, how are you? You know, you just never think that of him, you know, at, at that moment. And uh, he was always polite around when, when he would come in a couple of times, uh, polite. And uh, you just, you just kind of like, wow, that's, you know, it just kind of catches you like you have to really balance. Is this guy capable or, you know, is he not? 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I I've heard some of the in some of the the material that I've looked at and read. I know some of the detectives, like probably some of your partners, have said. I looked at the guy and I was like, he's a little guy, right? How could he do these crimes? Yeah, like, would... <laughs> they weren't necessarily little women, right? Yeah, I mean, some of them were right, you know. and, and some of the women he dated in Oak Park uh, were much bigger than him. Yeah, you know, I know, but uh, that was just. But his personality made him a, a a big person. Okay, in their eyes, I mean, that was mm-hmm. all about it. I mean, he was a talker, and he just had that gift of gab, mm-hmm. and he could talk, and they were okay with that. They liked it. So we're talking about more Solomon Jr. Um, and we're talking with John Cabrera, the detective at the time, who um, is now going to talk about a phone call that they received one day from someone who had found a dead body. Yeah, we uh, the department had received a phone call, you know, that a body had been discovered in this house in Oak Park. So, of course, they sent out units. And when the units got there, the individual uh, took the police into the house, explained to him that he was the handyman doing work here and he came to do his morning work and smelled an odor. And as he investigated it, it led him to one of the rooms. And when he looked in the closet there, he saw a black female laying on the floor uh, and she was deceased. So he called it in, you know, so that police would come out. And then who was this man who called it in? It was Morris Solomon. <laughs> so so Morris Solomon is the guy who actually got the police on the trail. Right. Now, so I'm thinking, right, here's what I'm thinking. He did this because he wanted you to think, hey, I'm just the innocent guy. I found this body. Like, they'll never think I'm the guy if I'm the one who's actually making the phone call. Yeah, it's that old double psychology. You know, yeah. why would you think it's me if I'm making a phone call? I could have just disappeared and you would have never found out. But he was going to play his cards at that time. And uh, unfortunately for him, it really put us on his scent. Okay. Uh, because then he became inconsistent after that. But yeah, he led us to the body. So why do you think he did that one? I mean, did someone see him do that? Did he think, okay, someone saw me. I need to like get ahead of this. Um, why, why that one? Why? And I think we're talking about Yolanda Johnson. Yolanda Johnson. Yolanda Johnson. Yo-Yo is what they call her on the Yo-Yo. street. So why that one, right? Why did at that point... Um, after probably a life of this, why did he decide, do do you know, did someone see him? No, that's the whole thing about it. Nobody has ever seen him doing anything with any of these people other than the prostitutes themselves and the information we've gotten from others. But I think what, what had happened with him is he was so high on drugs, smoking crack. I think he was so high at the time that he killed her that, uh, he just left the body here. He is stone cold, sober, you know, and he's thinking, now what am I going to do? Because I am actually working on this house. Yeah. And it's smelling. It's smelling. And the owner might come here to Uh check on his work. And so he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I can call in and say, hey, I just came to work and I found this. Got it. Got it. So you want to walk us through the investigation? What happened after that? On that particular investigation, you know, she was found with uh, her her, uh, clothing pulled down to her knees. Uh, but what we had discovered is on one of her thighs, it appeared to be some type of fluid. And a closer examination of it, we believed at that time it was seminal fluid. And at that time... There was no DNA. DNA was in its infancy. Yeah, it was. And so the best that we believed we were going to get out of that is blood typing, because you could type the blood. Mm-hmm. And that would put someone in a circle 
but it would be an awfully big circle. And uh, but at the time, you know, we didn't have any of that information on whose body fluid this was. And so we just went with the information that he was giving us because that's all we had to go on. You know, I mean, how can you say you have no other witnesses? He just shows up at a place he's working at and boom, there's yeah. a body. Did he give you the right name or? He... No, he used actually a different name oh, in, the, in the very beginning. Yeah. Well, he used a very, uh, a different name, but he had been arrested before when he was living in the Bay Area. And we were able to look at that. And that's when things started to change for us and look at him a little bit differently. Here was an individual that we found was a convicted sex um, person. And, uh, and he had gone to prison before over these uh, rapes. Here's what, here's what we have at the crime scene. Obviously, there's been some type of sex, sexual uh, activity going on um, and drug use going on there. And um, of course, uh, Yolanda Johnson, we knew, was a prostitute. Mm -hmm. And we had him come down, asked him if he'd come down, and he did. He never had any problem. No, I'll come down. I'll tell you all about it. Came down and talked to us. And the guy was just like, he couldn't do enough. You know, he was just a good Samaritan calling in a, a dead body. So you sat across the table from him, right? I watched mm -hmm. him for a while. Uh, but when he came out, I was able to talk to him. Hey, mm -hmm. hi, how are you? There was other detectives that were handling him at the time. And, uh, but that's when I first met him, you know, given the experiences that I've had in there, when somebody calls in something, we're going to look at them first. And, and, and what you want to do is alleviate them. Mm -hmm. And so I, and I kept thinking, you know, could he have tried to pull that? Uh, they'd take a break. He'd get up and stretch his legs. There wasn't anything where we were holding him because we really didn't have anything. We were just looking for his cooperation. But the more we let him do that, the more he talked. And then the more he would start to confuse himself. Contradict then, himself? Yeah, he just things started to change a little bit, you know. So we started even looking at him a little bit more. But that was the first time I really set eyes on him. And it was really, again, hard to say, this guy, you know, he doesn't look like, you know, he, he could do anything. And then how did that lead to finding the rest of the, of the unfortunate victims? We, uh, the detectives at that time, working on that particular case, uh, had asked him if they could um, go over to one of the houses he was living at. He actually was living at one place that he was working on. And they wanted to know if they could uh, search his vehicle. So when they went over and searched his vehicle, they were looking through the yard and everything, and they saw some suspicious looking spots in the yard, you know, where the ground had sunken down. And he'd given them permission. Hey, you know, do what you want to do. Search where you want to do. But they, you know, the car, they were looking at the car too. And um, they started to dig in these little areas. And lo and behold, they came up with human remains, first one, kept looking and got a second one. So now we had two. But still, there was nothing to tie him to these places. Because a lot of these houses also, you have to remember, these houses, when they go in repair and they're vacant, they become houses of uh, for crack use. So who knows who would have been in that house or who would have been in that yard? It would so, be tough to prove it up. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't rush to judgment. Yeah. You got to sit back. But again, you're going, well, wait a minute. Now we're finding more bodies and geez, guess who lives here? Right. You know, more Solomon. But it's like, you know, his position is, hey, look, I've just been working on this house. And we had, you have to also remember in Oak Park, I mean, at that particular time, there was so much going on, you know, mm -hmm. there was oh, gangs, yeah. gang activity, drug use. I mean, crack was the new epidemic in Sacramento. And I mean, it was really rampant and especially in Oak Park.
And so it was kind of like, sit back, let's wait, let's get a, a, more information. And, uh, and that's what we did. And, and it was, it was tough to do because he was out running around, you know, he could do what he wanted. So after they, after they, they found the bodies on the property that he was working on, that he had given them permission to work on, who, who were those victims? Those two found were Marie Apodaca and Sherry Washington. Okay. Those are the first two that were found so we had, on the property in which he had maintained and had and had lived there as he was working and fix, fixing it up. Now, were there witnesses that tied him to them or just, uh, not at that time? Just the bodies. Just the bodies. You know, this is a, I got to I got to tell you, John, this is a tough episode for me to do, because unlike the other ones where the crime happens, you get on the chase and then crimes happen and it's like, we got to stop them before they commit more crimes. Right. And like right. something like that. This is all like reverse. So you have Yolanda, you know, uh, the victim, Yolanda Johnson. But then it's a matter of you're finding his right. things that he had already done. So now we have the one he turned in. <laughs> like, And then we, unfortunately for him, and then we have the two um uh, Apodaca in Washington that are found on the property. On the property. Yeah. And then, so now you guys are like, okay, I think we have something here. Now we're putting a little bit more together. Here are mm -hmm. two other prostitutes that were reported missing. They had been missing and reported so. And um, I went back and at that time also, not only was I doing homicides, but as I was also in charge of working all the missing persons cases. So I was getting a lot of these cases. So we'd come in and we'd enter them into the computer, you know, if they if they seemed that there was some kind of uh, circumstance which put them in danger. Is what it cr what it created for me is this window to saying, hey, wait a minute, we have two missing people, prostitutes, uh, that we found dead in the yard. More Solomon, who had also been the reporter of another murder, which was Yolanda Johnson. I had numerous missing persons reports on females that were in the Oak Park area that were known to be in prostitution and drugs. And they were, they were missing. They were missing. And so I started pulling those cases, taking them aside because we had to identify Sherry Washington mm -hmm. and Marie Apodaca. Uh, but the state of their remains made it very difficult at the time, but at least we had something to go on. And, um, the coroner's office, Laura Santos from the coroner's office did a great job in trying to get the details off of the remains. But uh, we started to see a pattern now. Could the people that we have reported missing could also be victims hmm. of That's more Solomon? But we had nothing to go on. So. It, I think at by this time, by the third one, now that's enough. So you can also not only see a pattern that they're all on places where Morris was tied to, but you also see an MO emerging, right? Yes. Yeah. And the MO, I, I want to talk about what the MO was. Yeah. As method of operation, you know, um, we look at the, the things that would actually be, you know, all connected and with these individuals and possibly Morris. And that is uh, sex trade. You know, he was in prostitution. We knew he was a convicted sex offender, um, prostitution, drugs, and it started to be, that's what we were starting to look at. And when you started looking at a lot of these missing persons cases that I had, same thing, involved in prostitution, uh, known drug use. Um, okay. So now we're moving. So we found Apodaca, we found Washington. Now you're getting all the cases. So where do we go next? How do, where do we find the next victims? 
we start, what we actually start doing, uh-huh. the detectives, now there are several of us, because now we have all these different cases starting to put together. So uh, we decided, let's find out where he's worked at before. Oh, we man. wanted to take a look at what other houses, Morris, have you done work on? And that's what Did you led ask us. Him? Yeah. And he was like, sure. Sure. I worked on this house. I worked on the house. We contacted <laughs> the owners. The owners, uh, I have to say, I spoke to a couple of the owners who hired him on these properties and they said, well, yeah, uh, the guy was great. He did good work. I actually went and saw some of the work that he did on staircases and and in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't do shabby work. I mean, here's a guy that definitely had a trade. And because his trade was so good and in demand in Oak Park, they would call Morris. Morris came in. Morris did a great job and they paid him cash and they loved it. And when we said, oh, Morris is a, you know, I think he's a suspect in, a, in these in murder cases, you know, they couldn't believe it. They were like, wow. I mean, he, the guy came to work all the time. I could count on him. He did that, did this, you know, and and raved about his work, how good it was and how hard it was to find people that could do work that good for the price, you know. And so so where where are we now? So you're, you're looking, where are the next uh, folks you found? We start. Yeah, we start uh, now. They're starting to look at some of the other properties, starting to dig. And we get another call from a gentleman just off Martin Luther King Boulevard near near uh, uh, Broadway. Okay. And he tells us that he and his son are out playing ball. And they throw the ball and it goes over into the yard of a, of a house that they're renovating. Well, when he goes over and he gets close to the back of the house, he can smell something. And it's an awful smell. Mind you, it's we're in the summer now and it's over 100 degrees outside. And here is this odor, you know, and he just thinks to himself, I've smelled that before. I think this guy was a veteran, a Vietnam yeah, veteran, yeah. something. And so he contacts the police and the police go down into the basement, look around to this house that's being renovated. And down in the basement, they found another female. So we get the call out and myself and Terry Brown went on on that one. And I remember it was just really hot that day. And when I got to the back door, it hit me like. You knew. Oh, wow. It, I just thought, oh, uh, this this person's got to have been there for a while. Mm-hmm. And so I go down. I look around. I can see that there's already drug, drug activity that's been there. Um, you know, there was some. Uh, this it's like, you know, a, a scraping pad they use for dishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, very common. I forget the name of it. Like a like a Brillo pad, but mm-hmm. uh, I found pieces of that, which they used. What they would do is they would put that in a crack pipe oh, or a right. pipe of some sort. Right. That's and then right. they'd stick the little piece of uh-huh. crack in there and then they could smoke it. That's right. Kind of like a, kind of like a filter. Yes. I'm familiar you know, with that. So they wouldn't inhale it. Not, not from practice, but yeah, right. I, I yeah. saw it. Yeah. And, and so they scenes. wouldn't inhale it. Yeah. And uh, so they would do it. So I saw a lot of that. And then of course I, I see the body and her feet are tied you know, they're bound with wire. Mm-hmm. I look, her hands are bound. Um, her clothing is off, pushed off, you know, off and down to her knees. Then I noticed, I saw that in her mouth, she had a rag or something. It looked like a rag or a sock or something was stuffed down her mouth. Oh, God. So I thought, oh, that's, you know, if, I guess if she is found to be strangled because I couldn't find anything else at that time until we, we took her to the coroner's office. But I thought, uh, if she wasn't, she would be because he stuffed something down her throat. But that was the only body. That was um, uh, the uh, only body that we would find not buried. That was the only one that was in a basement. I guess he thought that was secure. He had laid 
um, they were like filters, like you'd put in an air conditioner. Mm -hmm. They were filters that he tried to cover the body with, but of course she was sticking out of it. And she had been there at least maybe four or five days. Oh, man. And she was just already uh, uh -huh. deteriorating. Wow, that's odd that he would, with this one, he would just, yeah, I'll just cover it with filters. Maybe he, was, he planned on coming back. Uh, or he yeah, could have been high. Or, yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, like you, you look at these bodies and even the bodies that were buried. Yeah. Uh, you know, they weren't buried, buried very deep, you know. So I, I have to think that he is so high. Yeah. He is so loaded. Yeah. He was disorganized. He's yeah, his brain is disorganized. Yeah. And he's just thinking, well, I'll, I'll dig this little shallow hole. And then he puts mm -hmm. the body in a hole, put wraps him up in a blanket, puts him in a hole. And um So now you got another victim. Now same, we got another one. Same type of MO bound. Right. Uh partially um nude, right? Reported missing. After about four or five days. I mean, obviously the families Yeah. They they, they knew what was going on with their Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, daughter or granddaughter. Right. They knew what was happening. Uh, but when they didn't show up, that's one thing they would tell me. You know, hey, whatever she was doing, she was doing. But she was home every night because usually they had kids. She was home every night. When they didn't come home for two or three days, that sent up a red flag. Usually people that work in this trade, they're going to get arrested. As soon as they get arrested, we're notified. The individual you have reported missing has been taken mm -hmm. into custody. And then we'd say, okay, now we know who they are. And we contact the family and tell them, hey, your daughter has been found in, you know, someplace. But we weren't getting any of that. Nothing. So, okay. So we have another, another, another victim tied to another place that, that. Well, well, did, well you, did you know right off that he had worked at that place? No. So you, okay. Right. So how did that all occur? Well, we saw uh, houses, you know, up, up in the, on the uh, living uh, quarters. Uh, you could tell it was being renovated. And um, I think on this one here, he might have done some work, but he wasn't doing any current work. And that's what made it difficult. And as we go along, I'll explain, as far as her case, what happened to it in the trial. Mm -hmm. But on this one here, we couldn't really pin down that he had he was actually doing any work at the time. So they might have just been using it as a trick pad. Okay. And that's what a lot of and he because he knew how to get in, right? He Price knew how to get in. The girls knew how to get in. Okay, there was a vacant house. They knew how to get in. Usually, the door was off the back, and they used it all the time. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So now, where do we go? So where are you going now? now so you, now, now you've got three. You got four victims, right? Yeah. So now we're going back out. Started going through the yards where he was working, and uh, eventually, we dug up the remaining. Three. We okay. had three more we found. And this was at a place that he had given you he, permission? That was the first one. Yeah. He had yeah. given detectives permission at that one, which, you know, he thought, oh, yeah, you, you can go and take a look. You know, nothing here to look at, you know. Mm -hmm. But when they went in and they saw, you know, these, these, this, this ground, this, this, you know, the indentations in the ground, they kind of like, wow, that looks a little weird. And they didn't have to dig very deep before they found body parts. You know, so it's really a matter of him being disorganized from the crack, man. Yeah. And then and then I, I think crack has a overall effect on you down the line. Like even if you're not using it, I think it really just Fs up with your ability yeah, just to lingers, be organized. Yeah. Just lingers there. And so I think the last three you found that, that you 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 got were uh, Linda Vitella, Sheila J. Cox, and Sharon Massey. Is that yes. right? Yes. Because let me tell you something, John, because I've read some of the things, if you don't yeah. mind. And some of the people think you guys took too long. 
some of the some of the reporters, some of the people in the community thought that the police took too long. Right. Like how many other lives were lost because they didn't go in there. So wanted to Well, you were correct. I mean, there were a lot of people saying, you know, what are we I remember what are we that. waiting for? I remember that. Yeah. And it was a lot lot of criticism coming from mm-hmm. especially people of Oak Park. That's right. People that still had people missing. Mm-hmm. A lot of criticism, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to let this guy just walk around wow. now. We put special unit on him, following him, watching him, seeing what was going on, but he did nothing out of the ordinary. So why did you wait? Did you wait to see if he led you to some more I think scenes? that's what uh that was decided by the upper echelon mm-hmm. and uh, to get more because there wasn't really anything other than Yolanda Johnson, Without which me. we thought that's a little bit at that time, mm-hmm. but all the other ones, we couldn't put him being with him at the time. Um, at one point we wanted to uh, get all of the missing person girls that were from Oak park. And we put their picture in the Sacramento Bee and there was eight of them. Yeah, we have that. Eight. And then that's a lot with the ones that we had already found and was like, wow, you know, are these all victims? But of course, Morris had buttoned up. He wasn't saying anything. He wasn't the game show host anymore. No, not at all. Yeah. And so uh, he wasn't going to lead us anywhere. Uh, we checked all these residences and those detectives that were we were working at different places, uh, they dug everywhere, but they couldn't find it. If he had hit him somewhere. He did a good job at that time because they couldn't find it. And at that time, you know, ground radar and all that stuff. Yeah. It didn't, didn't have any of that. Yeah. No. The technology, no Correct. technology. Yeah. You dug a hole, you, you stuck a, uh, a six foot piece of steel down in the ground and then you sniffed the hole, you know, and if you smelt something, boom, you know, you, you'd go digging, but nothing was found at that time, you know? So what we did over a period of time is try to follow all those people that we were looking at those other missing girls. And we were able to at least find four of them. Oh, okay. Four of them uh, we, we found. We found that they were alive. Uh, they were just in different places or some of them had, actually, I remember one had come back, but they hadn't, didn't even report her coming back. Okay. You know, so, and that, and that happens, you know, they come back and the family that reported it, don't bother calling and sure. saying they came back. Right, right, right. It was no big deal, but we still had four okay. that we couldn't find. Couldn't find and those are only the ones that were reported as missing. Right. Because many of these people have no family. Right. No one reports them missing because right. no one cares, um, unfortunately. So, all right. So when do you move in on uh, on our man? He did have a warrant. It was a misdemeanor warrant. I think it was some kind of multiple traffic thing. He could, he could be arrested on it, but that was going to be the ace in the hole. They were going to wait. Yeah. We knew that the the girls knew him and that, you know, he even admitted, oh, yeah, I've and actually some of the women, he said, oh, yeah, I I've dated them before and dated them. But I don't I don't know who these other people are. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And and he could be very convincing. So it, it was just weighing it until it got to a point that the chief of police, Jack Kearns. Instructed the special unit. Go out and get him. I mean, I think the heat was gathering so yeah. much. That he he told them, go grab him. And they did. They went and got him. Mm-hmm. And they basically booked him on the warrant that they had. But at the time, it would give time to try mm-hmm. to put everything else together with the district attorney's office. So now that he's arrested, his picture's in the paper. Yeah. Now people are going, oh, yeah, I saw him with Sherry or I saw him with Yolanda. Right. Got it. And in, in fact, once he was arrested on these cases, then women came out of the woodwork. 
these were women that were actually victimized by him. They were raped, beaten. One had a chain put around her neck. Uh, I think one of the exceptions that we had learned was that he had been with a, a woman. He, uh, uh, they were doing dope sex. And then for whatever reason, boom, he, he goes off, strangles her. She goes unconscious. Already, you know, that's it. He's thinking she's dead. He goes out and now he's digging a hole in the backyard. He's got to get rid of her. What happens with her is she actually isn't dead. She reawakens and then gets up, calls her boyfriend. He comes down and confronts Morris. Now they're in a fight. They're in a fight. Police do show up and they make some little incident report about something going on. You know, there's a little few wounds and stuff, but nothing's really said at that time. But she had discovered that there was a hole in the backyard. She would later come and testify that he choked her out. And then he took off and he was going to bury her. And she didn't want to, I think if my recollection is that she was on probation or something like that. So she just, hey, leave it alone. He's gone. My boyfriend and I are leaving. She didn't pursue it anymore until after his arrest. And then she would testify that he choked her out. He, yeah. thought, he thought she was dead. And then he went out and he was digging. <laughs> she hears the shovel. Yeah, or something like <laughs> yeah. that. And she awakens and, and it's like, oh boy. Uh, you know, so what? she doesn't call the police. Yeah, she calls her boyfriend. She calls her boyfriend. That's real justice. The street. Right. <laughs> he comes down and of course they get yeah. into it. So Morris Morris grew up in Georgia, I believe, right? Wasn't yes. it? A, Born by in his, Georgia. By his, uh, pretty much raised by his grandmother, Bertha. And yeah. and um, she beat him, right? On the all regular. The all the, uh, tied him up, which is interesting because his victims were all bound. Right. And she would tie him to the bed, whip him with electrical cord. I mean, this is the story, right? I, right. I'm just saying what right. the defense said. So the defense was saying, look, you know, this these, this tra this childhood trauma of being beaten uh, on a daily basis by in mystery and, you know, abused by the grandmother. Um, then he went to Vietnam, right, which led which added PTSD on top of the the abusive childhood. And now, then he got into crack cocaine, which all right. might be true. But, you know, um, how did that defense work out? How did that play out in, in, the, in the courtroom? Were you worried? Uh, you know, no, I, I really wasn't. I, I just, I really felt that the, the evidence, even though, um, nothing directly tied him, mm -hmm. but the circumstantial evidence was just too overwhelming. That's what struck me when I read the background, um, from his childhood was the use of the binding, right? The electrical right. cord, right. which is almost exactly what he did with, to with all the victims that you yeah. found. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the case to the victims is circumstantial, but God, I mean the 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 pattern that I think the jury heard was just pretty overwhelming. And then again, you know, you're looking if you look at him as I remember him when I first saw him, and I thought, wow, this guy, you know, he he wouldn't look like he could do anything. Yeah, you know, but I think when he smoked that crack, he became the monster that was really living inside of him. What I noticed, especially when I was in the DA's office and doing motions and seeing all the different crimes come across, you know, people have this, <laughs> they have this so wrong, they have, they have such a wrong notion of how you die. Right. People think you die like 
in the movies where a guy comes up to you or murdered, right? Right. Um, a guy comes up to you and, you know, aha, I'm going to kill you. And here's why I'm going to kill you because you did this to my father and now I'm going to avenge and right? You know, gives you a little speech and, you know, and then off you. No, that's not how it happens. It's crazy crack addict just snaps and thinks, right. I've always wanted to kill somebody and you're in front of him, right? There's no music. <laughs> There's no explanation. You're just there. When he decided he felt like killing somebody, that happens more often than people know. Right, it happens a lot. It's what we refer to it as a trigger. What was a trigger? And we often wonder what was his trigger, because we know that there were girls that he had dated, which was a term for you know using them. He had dated, and uh, they said, "Oh no, you know we had sex, we did some crack, and went about our business." He didn't kill everybody he was sleeping with. And so we had to figure out what was it, you know, and it really perplexed me thinking, what was his trigger? Because he seemed to be so docile when we talked to him, you know, and, but there had to be something that it was an accumulation of probably his childhood, his beatings, and he just snapped. maybe his friend in Vietnam that was killed by prostitutes, mm -hmm. by prostitutes. but whatever it was, whatever they might've mm -hmm. said triggered him. And when that trigger went off, you were dead. Yeah. Very different than, um, say, a Gerald Gallegos, who actually went out and hunted. Right. Premeditated, I'm going to hunt. This is my type, right? And then takes them, you know, does the things that he does um, with a partner, you know, uses her as bait. I mean, it's very meditated, very methodical, very right. organized. But though he got less organized as he went further, um, as he, as he, you know, went further and got caught. Right, his. I think we've talked about this. His right. organization, his organizational, got uh, pretty pretty loose. So, um, but this is very. This is a very different type of of killing. Very different. That snap killing. But in killers like him, they're going to have a trigger. You know, you look at some of these killers. They may be with someone, and it's like, well, I, I didn't feel like killing them. Well, why? Well, what was it? You know, and I think that's where you have these criminal psychologists try to get involved and figure out their thinking, but very difficult thing to do, I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. Pure reaction. So, so how did the, how did we, how did the, the trial turn out? How, how did we come out in this? Well, what had happened is uh, it, it went forward and um, getting back to our victim, mm -hmm. my one victim that we found in the basement, yeah. um, he would be tried on seven cases because we had seven cases, even though we still... We're missing, we knew four, mm -hmm. we could only try him on the seven. And out of the seven, a jury convicted him in 1991 uh, of six of them. And on the case that I was working, um, they just, they couldn't come to enough information that they could actually say that he was working on the house. There was, it was really loose with her. Mm -hmm. And, but the other ones he was convicted on. Yeah. He was convicted on six of the seven. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, that is a tough one because if there are other people working at that, yeah, that's, that's a little tough. Yeah. But we got him and then he was the, tried, got the death penalty. <clears throat> the first death penalty uh, trial um, didn't go so well. So they had to do a second penalty trial. The second penalty trial, he was given the death sentence. And uh, then he was off to San, San Quentin. Quentin. Where he resides today uh, until they uh, empty death row. You know, Morris, John, this case is one of it, it, 
when I think about the, the, the Morris case, right, when I think about him, what gets me is that if he had not made that phone call, if he hadn't made that phone call, if he hadn't outsmarted himself, he very well could still be going and doing, I mean, maybe not now because he's pretty 70, right? He probably outlived his prime, you know, crime, his praying years, but he could have gone for a very long time. Yeah. Um, committing these crimes and because he chose victims that no one thinks about no one sees no one cares about except their immediate family exactly and often their immediate family is out of their life right right he 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 could have gone on for a very long time so it makes me wonder john how long did he go on before he made that phone call you know in these other parts of oak park how many bodies are are still buried well we know that we haven't found four to this day. Four are still missing. And those are just the ones that were turned in. Right. And we've had uh, authorities come out of the Bay Area in the past, and they believe he's responsible for five in the Bay Area. One, he was arrested on. And when they went to trial, the key witness to connect him to it disappeared. So they couldn't file a murder charge on him. But they believe he's good for five murders in the Bay Area, plus all the rapes kidnaps right. and everything Never reported. Else. Those yeah. were never reported, right? Right. Until he came into custody. Right. And so, then, but he did have some, he did have a conviction down there on a rape. So he was already doing this in yeah. the Bay Area, you know? So Morris Solomon left a trail of terror and tears across California, Northern California. Right. But no one even knew because his victims were people that- They're in, they're just in that uh, line of business that people don't kind of, you know, really care. Mm -hmm. Even families, I remember talking to families when I would contact them on their missing persons report. You know, the the one thing is, you know, I know what our daughter was doing, you know, but I hope that doesn't prevent Mm -hmm. you from, and I'd say, no, it doesn't matter what she was doing. You made a report and I'm going to find out one way or the other, you know, if she's arrested somewhere or something like that, I understand your concern, but we're not going to turn the case away because she's a prostitute. So did you learn anything from this case, from 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 the Morris Solomon case? Yeah, I learned a lot. Uh, some of the things that I saw, because I'd been in homicide ooh, six or seven years then, and there's always something you learn new, mm-hmm. and you want to take advantage of it. You want to learn from these things, and especially with these serial killers. You want to learn their methods, their operations. And like I'd mentioned, you know, what was a trigger? What are some things that would have triggered an individual like this. You know, was it the rock cocaine or was it his past? And of course the defense used his past for his defense. I saw, and I think if you look today, not a whole lot of information was coming out of Oak Park on these women. Mm-mm. I mean, they were missing. They were gone. And, you know. You never heard about it's that. It's just one of those things. And when I look back now and I compare it to, you know, say some of the other serial murders, John Gacy. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dahmer, some of those guys, you know, Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Corona. Juan Corona up in Northern California. Right. Over two dozen. He killed over two dozen. You know, there was a lot of information on that. But with more Solomon, you have a little bit of information. You don't have as much information. Can I, t- so, you know, I'm looking at the pictures here of all these missing young black women. And I was in Sacramento at the time. I was at McClellan Air Force Base, as I talked about earlier. I never heard about 
14 missing young women in Oak Park in Sacramento. I never heard about that. Never, ever, never heard about that. I remember a young, young, uh, poor child. I I don't want to use her. I, I don't mean to use her as part of an as part of a rhetorical piece for an argument but um there's a young woman who went missing off of Howe Avenue at a park there and she was out there for a picnic and it was a horrible thing that happened to her they found her down by the pond I don't know if you worked on that I remember the case it was yes, yes. that was a case that shook me to the core this poor young girl was out at in a at a off of cottage there's a big right, park a there park yeah yeah and she park. was stolen uh, while she was out there and yeah. w- what they did to her, what this person did to her was horrendous. Right. Um, but while she was missing, you heard about that everywhere. Right. Right. Cause it was around the same time. I never heard about this right. ever. And I was a news junkie. I only heard about it when they started finding bodies. Right. That was it. So you're right. Yeah. I, I mean, I just had to sit back. And then of course the following year after Morse, I found the bodies with Dorothea Puente and even today, it's nonstop. There was just uh, mm-hmm. similarities in the type of people that you pick. Yeah. And unfortunately for Morris's victims, um, they had no voice for them. There was nobody to stand up for them because they were in that line of business at the time. It was like, uh, they're into prostitution. They could be anywhere. Right. You know, who cares? They're gone. Get out of the neighborhood. I mean, that's just the way it was, you know. And uh, Well, well, John, you know, you know in closing, I, I can say that, um, you know, I— I have people that will see stories about a serial killer being caught. And not as many as there used to be, by the way. Um, a serial killer being caught or someone being caught for a string of crimes, or, you know, of murders. And they're like, oh, that's horrible. Oh, my God, that's so scary. That's horrible. And I always think in Morris Solomon is a great example of this. I'm like, no, you should not be afraid of that. You should be afraid of the guy who's out there killing dozens, but he's too bright to get f-ing caught. Right. Because he's still out there. They just stay above the drift. And, um, you know, the ones that are, there are people, they're out there. They are. And I'll tell you, they're out there. And, uh, you know, however they're conducting their business, it's not being connected. You don't connect it. It's not until they make that mistake, they find them. And then lo and behold, they find a trail. That's and right. the trail goes way back. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they'll keep doing it. They'll keep killing out there. I mean, whether they run the bars, you know, and that's where people just have to use their, especially women, you know, because more Solomon was a true serial killer. You know, he, he didn't kill for financial gain. You know, he didn't kill for any other reason. He was a sex offender. He had sex and then killed them. You know, serial killers, sexual killers. And, you know, with Morris, he started as a sex offender and then the killing came later on. So he had, again, changed. Not only was he going to just rape them and brutally injure them, now he was just going to rape them or have sex with them and kill them and bury them. That's, that's what had happened. He just progressed. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been a great one. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, I'm glad you, you, you've always wanted to talk about more Solomon, and um, I'm glad we finally did yeah, it. Yeah, I'm just I, I'm grateful you gave me the opportunity because Morris is someone that, uh, to me, uh, has to be one of the biggest heavy hitters as far as serial killers, especially in Sacramento. And we've had so many here in Sacramento, you know, I mean, and I, and I have been uh, at, at the helmet investigating mm-hmm. a few of them. And um, I can tell you, he, he really stands out the way he was operating. Uh, he would have gone on killing. There was no stopping more Solomon, no stopping him. And yet today, 
you know, everybody will talk about Dorothea Puente, you know, Richard Chase, the vampire killer. Yeah. But when I mention Morris Solomon, they go, Morris who? Yeah. And I go, Morris right. Solomon sits on death row. I said, he's killed I so agree. many. We, we don't even know how many he's killed. Totally agree with you. <laughs> but that's just the way this system works sometimes. And, and I see that it's changed considerably today mm -hmm. than it was then. And I'm grateful for that, that nobody goes, you know, without some concern that we, we're going to find you, we're going to look for you. Um, but it's just, you have these killers that are out there that are just a little bit smarter, they are. you know, because there's probably a lot of crime shows they watch and get a, right. lot, of, a lot of tips. That's right. We know that for a fact. That <laughs> yeah. They'll watch crime shows right. and they learn a lot. They figure out, hey, wait a minute, I saw what they did, so I'm going to do this, yeah. you know, so... Anyway, right. yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah. It's always great to be here with you, Dave. Yeah. And I enjoy it. And yeah. I I um I hope that uh, everybody goes home and stay safe. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot. And we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you.